<clears throat> Good morning. I'm, there's a book, that, an old book that I really love. Uh, my wife and I both love this. It's called Le Mort d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory. It is an early account, one of the early accounts of King Arthur's court. And I love reading through it, uh, all the, all the uh, <clears throat> acts and mighty exploits of the knights of the round table in it. And uh, they, they are honored, uh, especially the, the, the greatest knight of all, the mightiest knight of all, Sir Lancelot. He, uh, he does these mighty exploits, and it, uh, it, he, he gets all this honor for doing it. And I love reading about these uh, different feats that they do, the knights, in this, in this early account. Well, you might uh, like look at that and say, you know, that's interesting, but kind of this secular activity that's going on. But we're, we're actually going to be reading a passage this morning that shows God's kingdom is a kingdom with honor for those who excel in serving in his kingdom. We're going to be reading a passage that shows that. It's at the end, again, in Samuel, thinking about David's reign, the sinner after God's own heart, and how his kingdom would not have been as great as it was without these men that we're going to read about doing these mighty exploits, right? The king would never have achieved what the king achieved without them. And as, as we read, no doubt, you'll notice verse 10, verse 12, that the victory belongs to the Lord. It's certainly the Lord who brings about victory uh, in, in these battles that they fight. But he is pleased to do it with these mighty men that he uses. And God never seems to tire of naming names of those who excel uh, in his service. You even get this in the New Testament. You know, there are certain features of the New Testament letters. Uh, you read through them and you see like, women like Euodia or Rufus or this other guy I like to uh, look at, Ampliatus, because his name sort of sounds like my name. My last name, I think about him. And, and because of this interesting feature about, about the Bible, naming names, sometimes like two or three times a person's name, sometimes only once we read their names, we, we actually have kind of uh, confirmatory evidence because of that. There's this guy, Erastus, who's mentioned just, um, just once, I think, once or twice in the Bible. And I've actually stood... Um, by the archaeology that confirms this in ancient Corinth, there's, there's this stone out in a meadow I found, and it is, um, I didn't find it. it was, somebody else found it, but they don't really take care of things out there as well, and, and so I had to really uh, look for it again. But there's this stone laid out that says, I, Erastus, laid this street in Corinth. Uh, and there it is, you know, and this guy is in the Bible, uh, so it's kind of neat, uh, but it's because of this feature that God never tires in naming names of those who excel in his service. And so we do that here. You know, we do these covenant entrance days um, in which we bring up people, we highlight them, and uh, it's, a, it's a tradition of ironworks too. I've done this many times, and I've received criticism at times for this, and people say, you know, I come to church in order to worship God. And people have criticized and said, you know, you're, you're doing these things, you highlight these people, you tend, to, you tend to, you know, make it about the people rather than about Christ. And my reply to these, uh, uh, to these folks have been, 
Um, thank you for the warning uh, to remain Christ-centered. But I find that this Christ, this anointed one, this king, wants to honor those in his kingdom, wants to give them honor. I see it in the pages of the Bible here, right? You see it's the Old Testament here, this passage we're about to read, the king uh, delights in them. And we know he does because he tells about them in the book. It's in the book. It's recorded, you know? And you can, you can contrast this when you read about the reigns of the Assyrian kings. You know, if you um, ever have read the Assyrian king, Assyrian king lists, light reading before bedtime, um, if you ever do that, you'll notice there's only one great warrior in each reign, in each administration, and that's the king. <laughs> that's the king. He's the only great warrior. Not in the Bible. Something else is happening in this new kingdom of Israel. And that is why kind of we kind of rearranged things when we found out and realized we were actually installing the officers that we're going to be installing this week. We kind of rearranged things and uh, did, th did things differently here um, so that uh, this week we, we arranged it so that we could highlight and make sure the day uh, was specifically about what's, what we're doing today because of what we see in the word. Please stand with me as we hear this passage read, if you're able. Uh, James is going to read from the end, again, from the end of the book of Samuel, one of the last passages about David's mighty men. already on. 2 Samuel 23, 8-23. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bathshebeth, Atakamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Elohi, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where he was where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 men went down in camp and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me a drink, give me a water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew out water of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out on the he poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, 
was chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, James. You may be seated. James, I guess you're really appreciating the handsomeness of that one guy. It's, a, it's an interpretive choice the, the translators are making, handsome or big in some way. Um, something really notable about him. All right, so, you know, reading this, I, I do want to address those of you who might feel a little bit of uh, a kind of discomfort as you're reading a passage in which there is so much bloodshed that is actually being praised. And it might be hard for you to enter into this passage uh, especially those of us unfamiliar with war in our lives. Uh, we've never experienced war. It might be difficult for us to comprehend the need uh, to be killing and the need to have bloodshed and for that to be a good thing. Uh, if we've never experienced somebody who wants to kill us, I mean really an enemy who wants to kill us or enslave us, it might be hard for us to appreciate the uh, necessity at times for war. Uh, but the Bible tells us that there is a time to kill. And there was a time, especially in light of what was going on in Canaan and uh, what, what they were up against, that there was a need for war. And that's the context in which this occurs. And in this time period, in this covenant, there was a need for taking up the sword for God. Uh, that was appropriate for those times. It was, it was a necessary thing to, to bring about the geographical kingdom of God on earth, which is what the program was at that time in that covenant. That time is no longer. We do not take up the sword for this king any longer. He's made that clear. But this time, uh, it was appropriate. So I, I offer that to help, just help you maybe enter in, because even though it's very different from our lives and maybe very um, uh, uncomfortable in that way, I, I want to I ask you to come with me to look at this passage and to look at it in a little more depth. Um, because I still think that what we can get from this passage is what God really wants to honor. God wants to honor these men, recording them in the scripture. And we can see what it was that he wanted to honor. And I, I wanted to give this to you because I want you to be honored as well. I want you to be, to, to rise to, to aspire to these same kinds of deeds like these mighty men of old. I want you to be honored when honor passes out, is passed out that day. And we see, actually, from the last part of the passage, you notice that there are different levels of honor, right? There are different places of honor in the kingdom, different rewards of honor. And that kind of raises the question for us, right? How is someone great? Who is great in the kingdom? What makes for greatness in the kingdom? 
don't know if any of you want to be great in the kingdom, but how do you get there? If you want to, if you want to be listed like these guys in God's roles, how do you get there? How do you get to be great? Well, we find out in this passage. And I would suggest to you as we look at it, there are two mighty exploits. There are two things that God is honoring in this passage. Two great deeds that, that land people in the book, right? What are they? Well, let's look. Number one, I'll just tell you, verses 8 through 12, number one, stay in the battle. Stay in the battle. You look at the greatest three, the greatest three who were serving David, right? Verse 8, Josheb. Verse 9 through 10, Eliezer, son of Dodo. And verses 11 through 12, Shammah, son of Agi. What do these guys have in common? What do these three mighty men have in common? Well, I think in the, in the latter two cases, it's, it's explicit, right? It's explicit what's going on there. Single combat without the army, right? You look at verse 9 and verse 10, what happens? The men of Israel withdrew. The men of Israel withdrew, but Eliezer didn't. See that? Verse 11, the army fled from before the Philistines. In verse 11, Shammah didn't. Interesting also, it's, I think that's a Gentile name. Gentile convert, Shema fought. He did not withdraw when the rest of the army did. And I think that's also what's going on in verse 8 with Josheb. 800 men. Why did he have to slay 800 men by himself? Because he was by himself. Because the, he, he didn't have others gathering around him. He had to stand alone when others might have fallen away. They stayed in the battle. They kept their hand on the sword. You know, this phenomenon here, verse 9, Eliezer's hand freezing to his sword. You see that? That's actually a historical um, kind of phenomenon that happens sometimes in battles. You can read about it. You read about battles and people stay in there for a long time and their hands freeze to the sword. Uh, A.F. Kirkpatrick talks about the, the battle in the, on Mount Lebanon, 1860. You had the... Um, it was really the Druzes. The Druzes were like slaughtering the Christians. It was a real a bloody battle, very long battle. But the, the sheikh, or the, we say the sheikh, his hand was frozen to his sword after the battle. Like it couldn't, it couldn't unclench his hand. Had to put it, you know, and warm it with warm water for his hand to be unclenched from the sword. That's, that's what's being described here. Why? Because he stayed in the battle. Eliezer stayed in the battle. Steadfastness. Perseverance. Do you know that in the service of your Lord? Do you know that when things do not go the way that you want them to, when it doesn't feel good, do you know that staying in there? You know, I remember I, uh, one time I was counseling this uh, couple uh, in this cafe, and it was a real handsome couple. He was a very, talk about this pastor, he was a very handsome man, um, and she was just gorgeous. And I kind of got the feeling talking to them that, especially uh, the woman, she had not been in a place 
where things had you know, not gone her way very often. You know? Like people who, who are that, who are extraordinarily beautiful, you know, tend to have doors open for them. Not that they don't have any suffering in their life, but things tend to go open before them. Things tend to go their way. But she was now in a situation in this marriage where things were not going her way. And I was trying my darndest to get them to persevere with one another. And they were, they were in a rough spot. And I remember one time when, um, during, that, during that meeting where uh, he got up to go to the, use the restroom, I was sitting with her. And she looked at me and she said, this is not fun for me. This is not fun for me. And you know, I can't even remember what she looked like, but I, I remember the pain in her voice. I felt the pain in her voice when she said that. And I, I actually often say that to the Lord when I'm in a situation where I think I'm being called to persevere, to keep on in a battle. And as I find myself remembering her words and saying that to the Lord, you know, this is not fun for me. <laughs> what do we do when it's not fun for us even any, anymore? Do we stay in that? Do we keep in there with that church? Do we keep in there when it doesn't feel good? Do we stay in there with that relationship? Do we keep visiting? Do we keep praying? Now, you know, there are times when it's, it's not appropriate, appropriate to stay in there. This is not always the counsel I give. In, in situations of abuse, you know, you wouldn't give that counsel to stay in there when a relationship should end. There are times when a relationship should end. But that's when you're in a situation where you are continuing in there would be continuing to enable sin to go on. But this is what we're talking about here is being in a situation where... You no longer see the point of what you're doing because, just because it hurts, right? You look at, look at verses 11 through 12, this, this shamah takes his stand, it says, in this, in this field of lentils, in this patch of lentils. And the situation there is probably a, a raiding party that's coming in and stealing food out of the mouths of Israelites, right? And so... And so Shammah is defending this ground. He finds himself in this, is in this lentil patch. And the author is noting that for us. I, you know, lentils were not very important to Israelites, okay? In terms of, if you were to rank vegetables, you know, lentils would not be very high. And you know that, right? Lentils are not very important to you. Um, unless you're my wife, who really does think a lot of lentils. She gets excited about lentils. Oh, she says lentils, lentil soup and things. But, you know, for normal people, uh, <laughs> lentils don't matter that much, you know. So what, what's going on here is Shama finds himself in the lentil, and even though he's in a lentil patch, he still fights on for the land. He still is in there, even when it starts to, you know, you wonder if this is really important to do asking himself, you know, why am I in this lentil patch again? <laughs> His hand does not leave the sword. You know, and I would say this to those of you who we're, go we're going to call up in a few minutes, you who are becoming officers of the church, this is what God is asking of you. We have a name for this. It's called covenant faithfulness. And this is what God is going to be requiring of you in this office. 
staying in there with it, at least you know, for your term, in, the, in, in what God has called you to do. And that's a mighty exploit. God is thrilled with that in you. When you stay in there, it will be recorded. That's number one. Okay, stay in the fight. Mighty exploit. Number two, we see it also in verses 13 through 17. What do we see the three of the 30 doing? What do we see them doing? We see them acting for the sake of the anointed one. That is their motivation, to act. This is what's motivating them, the anointed one, for the sake of the anointed one. That's why they're doing it. And so we have this story here of the fire and you, uh, of, the, of the water. You could just imagine this, can't you? You could just imagine David is, is, is he's, he's entrapped in this, in this camp. He's surrounded by Philistines, right? He's exiled by his own people, exiled from his rightful rule. And he's there and he's probably feeling very nostalgic. He's probably remembering Bethlehem and being a shepherd. And he's like, you know, when I was a shepherd... I could go to this one well in Bethlehem and I could get a drink of water. Now I can't even get a drink of water. I could go there whenever I wanted. He's probably just remembering this out loud. And you could just imagine, right? There are these three guys and they overhear this and they're sitting around the campfire and they're saying to one another, what can we do for David? What can we do for the anointed one? And they overhear David being nostalgic about this water. And you, you could just picture them. They're sitting around there looking at each other saying, let's do it. <laughs> let's just do it. And they do. They fight, fight through these Philistines. And, you know, I, I, by my reckoning, you know, from this cave to Bethlehem, if, I, if I'm reading it right, it's about 25 miles round trip. They make this 25-mile round trip to get this water from David's well, bring it back to David to give it to him. Why? Because they wanted to do it for the anointed one. And friends, those are the things that count. Those are the actions that matter. You know, there are a lot of nice things that you can do, a lot of neat things that you can do in a church. There are also a lot of reasons you could be doing them. You could be doing them in order to look good. You could be doing them because it's a nice religious thing to do. You could be doing them so that people like you, right? You could be doing them for your own glory. You know, one of the saddest points in Le Mort d'Arthur is at near the end of the book where Lancelot comes to realize that his, his mighty deeds actually weren't worth much because he realizes actually he was always doing it for his own glory, one of the neat parts of the book, right? He comes in, this, I guess this hermit talks to him and he's convicted and he realizes all these mighty deeds that he's been doing. He's really been doing them just for his own honor, for his own glory. They aren't worth, they aren't worth much. He's, he's no Galahad, he realizes. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. I want you to find out at the end, at the end of the book, why you were doing it. And if you are doing it for his good or, or for your good, if you're doing it for the anointed one or not. But you know, it's actually okay because if God really loves you, he will arrange the circumstances providentially to, in order to reveal to you why you're doing what you're doing. 
Sometimes you might know. You, we might be like Lancelot. We might know, am I really doing this because of, for God? Am I really doing this for Christ? Or am I doing this for my own glory or so that people like me? Sometimes it's hard to tell. If God loves you, he will arrange the circumstances so it will become clear. You will have to, you will have to know whether you are doing this for Christ or for not. That's why, you know, there's talk sometimes we hear about it more these days that um, churches might lose their tax-exempt status. And I know some of you say, oh, that'll never happen. But, you know, I don't know. As our culture continues, it's steady march toward paganism. It could be, a, it's a possibility, a definite possibility. A church could lose their tax-exempt status. And, you know, I, I, I almost half hope it might happen. <laughs> half hope. You know, it would be bad for the culture if it happened. But... But honestly, it would, it would cause a lot of people to ask, why am I giving to my church or to my charitable organization? When that incentive, it's no longer a tax benefit to give to your church. What will the people of God do? It will be one of those times where we, we are cast back and we, we are caused to realize, why are we giving to our church or to our charity that we're giving to? That's not entirely bad. But these guys, these three guys, very clear from this story, they're doing it for the king. And friends, that makes all the difference. That is mighty exploit number two. Number one, keep your hand on the sword. Number two, doing it for the anointed one. Now, I am hoping that as I'm talking, you're thinking about that situation in your life that God may, want, may be asking you to persevere in asking you to do a mighty exploit. And, you're pro and, you, and you could be thinking, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I am just worn out. I do not want to continue doing this. This is not fun for me anymore, right? And you're you could be thinking about it. It's like, I don't want to be great. I don't care if I'm not great. <laughs> it's just too hard. Yeah. Let me tell you, you know what makes you do this? You know what actually makes you do mighty exploits? You know what brings you into that space? where you're like these three guys who are like, let's do it. <laughs> it's being affected by the anointing one, by the anointed one. Being affected by him. Seeing him and the way that he is ruling, not, not to be served, but to serve. And we see that in verse 17. You look, you look at what happens. They bring this water back to, to David. What does he do? He takes the water after they make this 25-mile round, round trip, fighting through Philistines, <laughs> Philistines-infested land. He takes that water, right? He pours it out on the ground. He says, I can't drink this because this is the lifeblood of these men. We're willing to sacrifice this for me. He won't even drink it. Friends, that is David at his best. We've looked at David in some of his best words and his worst moments. This is David at his best. Like um, the uh, commentator Joyce Baldwin, she puts it this way. Only the Lord was worthy of that sacrifice. And David noted that. Only the Lord is worthy of that sacrifice. And so he offers it to the Lord. That's what he's doing when he's pouring it out on the ground. And you know what we see there when David's doing it? We see a glimmer. We squint our eyes and we see a glimmer, not only of, of David's character, his, his anointed, this anointed one,
but of the anointed one to come. David is showing us there the real anointed one to come. Because, you know, there was another anointed one to come. He also had a great battle to fight. He also was exiled by his enemies. He also was denied his rightful rule of his kingdom. He was also in the, in the thick of a battle, of a, of a very spiritual battle, when he was thirsty. It was right before he was crucified. His name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus also, the true anointed one, thirsted. Very interesting, when he was brought just before he was crucified, he was thirsty. And he was offered a drink, and he also refused it. Right? He turned it down. He turned down that relief, just like David. But Jesus went farther than David did. He went, he went much farther than David did. Because he turned, not after he refused the relief, he poured out his own life blood on the ground. Didn't just pour the water out on the ground. He poured out his own life blood on the ground. That's the true anointed one. And guess what? Guess who was there and witnessed that? His mighty men. You know, this next anointed one, he had his own mighty men. They were called James, John, and Peter. He had these three. Also had three mighty men in a way. And they saw it. And they experienced it. They were affected by the anointed one. And you know, we see in the Gospels that we see their weaknesses. We see their, the weaknesses of their lives up to that point. But at that point, after that, these men became men of mighty exploits. Incredible uh, perseverance of these guys. Steadfastness in their later life. They were, they were those who did these mighty exploits. And in fact, they did what, what, he, what Jesus said, even greater acts than the king did. Incredible perseverance, astounding singularity of purpose for their anointed one. That's the way it happens. Friends. And so I would ask you to look upon your anointed one because Allowing him to affect you is what brings you to do these mighty deeds of, of, of allowing your hand to be, to, be, to be cemented to the sword when it needs to be, of stay, staying in there and doing it for the right reasons, for the motivation of serving Christ. You know, that's why this was written. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about the purpose that the book of Samuel is written, but this is why it was written. It, the best, the best way, the best evidence kind of points to that this, this book came out in the next phase of Israel's history. After, after David, after King Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. And in, the, in, the, in that divided kingdom, people were confused. Like, where, what do we do? How do we serve God? And this book came out to encourage them, tell them where they came from, how they could continue to do mighty exploits. The original readers could still do mighty exploits, and that is what it is for us too, friends. There are still mighty exploits to be done. And I prayed for leaders uh, for this church to do these mighty exploits as well. And so we have these guys coming uh, forward now. And it's, it's to a place of danger. You know, you, you engage in the service of the Lord and it's dangerous. In verse 20, this guy, Benaiah, who fights a lion with snow on the ground, 
If you're fighting a lion with the snow on the ground, that's a particularly dangerous lion because he is going to be hungry. And if you confront him in a pit, it's doubly dangerous because you're trapped with this hungry lion. It's a place of danger. And that's what's, coming, what's going to happen today. You know, what we're, what we're witnessing is these guys stepping forward to spiritual leadership. It's a place of danger. And, and if you look at what's going on, you say, isn't this wonderful? We, you know, these guys are getting to use their gifts. And, you know, they're getting a place of status. You do not understand what's going on today. If you think that's, that being put in their position, that they're being put in, is, is somehow, you know, an elevation of status... You're not getting what's, what's, what's really going on in spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership is standing in front of the all-consuming fire. It's still all-consuming. You know what happens when you stand in front of an all-consuming fire? You get burned. That's why you should be praying for these guys. Because that's what it's about. But for all of us, for them in particular, and for you, I would give you this exhortation. Look to this anointed one. Look to him. Take your stand in this patch of lentils. Hold your ground when it's not fun anymore. Wield your efforts for Christ's sake rather than your own. And you will do mighty exploits. And I can tell you, friends, they will not be unrewarded. They will not go unrecorded. Of that, we can have no doubt. Amen? Amen. Let's